What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Coming up on this week's show, give your game gear an audio boost. The hottest new horror game to hit the Sega Saturn. And we explore the Italian Amiga demo scene with Paolo Durso. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen their latest book, from Ants to Zombies, Six Decades of Video Game Horror, a showcase of horror gaming from the 1970s right up until the modern day across 70 different hardware platforms from the ZX Spectrum to the Xbox Series X. And you can buy that right now and check out the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 402, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the show, the podcast that every single Friday takes you back to the classic days of video games. Now, that could be the the 1970s, sitting down in front of your telly playing your Atari 2600, maybe the 80s, all those lovely Saturdays spent on your Commodore 64, maybe the 90s in front of your PlayStation 1, maybe the early 2000s, sitting there in front of the fire playing your GameCube, all those memories flooding back. And of course, we'll bring you up to speed on everything that's been happening in the world of retro from over the last seven days, and we bring you a very special guest in the second half of the show, and of course, it is the first podcast of November... You guys got your, your comfies on, your, your warm clothes? You, you know what? I didn't actually know you were going to ask that, but I actually have a uh, orange blanket wrapped around me right now with pumpkins printed on it. Like, I know it's November <laughs> now, so, but you know, I am actually a little bit chilly in the old spare room. <laughs> I, I yeah. cleared my loft out to get the kind of insulation in there, and I'm like, oh my God, so much retro tech up here. So it's been a discovery of, you know, uh, what, what I've not, realize that i've got up there and yeah i found quite a nice pc tower actually i was like oh wow now we're into this time of year you know that means that the uh i was checking the christmas quiz is around six weeks away now i've got to keep up my kind of reign of being the <laughs> ultimate loser <laughs> Christmas quiz. well for those people that haven't heard it before because I mean, we get new listeners coming in all the time this is like a bit of a retro hour tradition now isn't it this will be our uh I think this will be the seventh year that we've done this now so basically we do um a complete change of format for our final show of the year each year, the one just before Christmas. And uh, basically, we we challenge each other to basically a retro battle of the wits, really, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm worried we're going to run out of questions because we always do 100 questions, don't we? And mm. uh, we, you know, we, we mix, we try to mix it up every year. Like we do teams or we go solo. Sometimes Dan's the quiz master. Uh, our friends Paul and Ollie um, come on and sometimes their contestants or they're the quiz master. I'm a mixed bag because I have come last and first. Yeah, that's because uh. you were on my team. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Several times. I think every time you've competed, Dan, you've won. I think. I think it's rigged. I still do. So I was uh, going to say, I, I quite like being the quiz master because then there's no pressure on me. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but it, it might not happen this we're, year. We're looking to mix it up again and do something different again this year, aren't we? 
So. Yeah, and it's um, we we love the comments we get as well. So many people kind of play along at home as mm. well. So uh, you know, maybe on that drive home for Christmas, you know, listening in the car, that's always cool. So uh, getting into that time of year now, and then of course we'll have the best of twenty twenty three, even though it feels like this year only started like a couple of months ago. Um, and then of course looking ahead to twenty twenty four, that won't be far away now. But before we do all that, I mean, actually this week we're going to be kind of going back to the summer for me because. You know, we often do retro events across the summer. They've kind of, you know, quietened down for the rest of this year for us now. But we had a pretty packed summer. All of us went to different events all over the place. One of my favourite events that I went to this year was a great little Amiga gathering in Italy in a small town called Spoleto, which is in the, it's in the wine region of Italy in Umbria. And a lovely guy got in touch with me called Paolo. And um, when I was out there, he, he's put this event on for a couple of years now, but actually back in the day, in the 90s, he was very big on the Italian demo scene, not only making demos, but also putting on these big parties. That, I know you'd heard about them, Ravi. They were kind of legendary back in the yeah, day. So we, Spoleto uh, yeah, so we... And parties. Yeah, yeah. Well, Spoletium was uh, mm. the big one, I think, in uh, 2000 and 2001 that I was aware of. And, you know, you get these discs that would come out and they'd be like CD-ROMs, actually, Um on like Amiga format and stuff like that. And I always remember yeah. seeing the Italian demo scene and the demo parties and the demos are always like, some were really technically impressive, but a lot of them were just wacky and crazy and really stylish. And I think the Italian Amiga scene is really interesting. There's a, a lot of kind of developments that came from there. There's a lot of Amiga fans in Italy as well. And uh, we yeah. often hear about like Germany and Poland and, uh, the UK and uh, Australia and the US, but we don't really focus that much on Italy. And I know there was a lot of Italian Amiga users. So this is a really interesting chat. I remember one of the games that he worked on was uh, Tales from Heaven, which was this kind of, um, it's kind of like a Mario 64 uh, style game. And I remember it ran on an 040. Um, yeah. And it, I've always found that interesting, you know, games emerging from the demo scene. And of course, in Italy, you've got a Passione Amiga, which is the uh, Italian Amiga magazine. So there's quite a big scene there. Yeah, I mean, Paolo actually was a founder of uh, Amiga Passione, the, the magazine out there. That I think he's just actually stepped down from it now, but it, it is continuing with somebody else. But I mean, this party he invited me out to, um, I did a little talk there as well. Alistair Brimble was out there with me. Mev Dink was there too. And it was just a great little gathering. I mean, very small, intimate event. Um, you know, the wine was flowing, beautiful Italian food as well. We all went to a lovely restaurant afterwards too. And then... Um, me and my missus who came with me, we spent a few days out there and Paolo was kind enough to give us like a tour of the region, took us to some of the vineyards and stuff. But on the evenings, he's telling me all these stories about his like Amiga days back in the nineties. And everyone was just incredible. And I said to him, look, we need to get you on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And chat about this. So uh, yeah, it's really interesting. So he's actually, um, he formed a company called Darkage Software who did, like you said, they did some Amiga games back in the late nineties, including uh, Tales from Heaven, which was a uh, quite an impressive kind of Mario 64 clone for the Amiga, like you said. And also, he's he's bought the rights recently to uh, one of the worst Amiga games. Are you familiar with Dangerous Streets? Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. Explain what that is for people that haven't heard oh, of Wasn't Streets. it like a CD32 launch title that was yeah. uh, just very laggy and uh, kind of really yeah. badly designed? I didn't play it that much. I remember the cover, though. It was, it was awful. Um, and it, why has he bought Dangerous Streets? <laughs> Well, Dangerous Streets, it was a yeah, it was a beat 'em up game that came with the Amiga fighting game. And if you thought Rise of the Robots played badly, 
Try Dangerous Streets. And this was a pack-in that Commodore actually put in the box with the uh, the CD32. And basically, he's bought it because he's working on a sequel to it. And he said his intention is to make it even worse than the original. Oh, possible. I love that kind so, of uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like you said, always a bit of humour, a bit of tongue-in-cheek with the Italian team. It's got so. 1.9 out of 10 as an average score. I think that's been generous. Uh, and an 8% on Google. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, terrible. I wonder how many CD32s that sold. <laughs> <laughs> Not very many, by the looks of it. So yeah, Paolo Durso is incredible. Um, and if you want to hear all about the, yeah, maybe a sign of the the Amiga demo scene of the gaming scene from back in the day that you might not have been all that familiar with, definitely hang around. One for the Amiga fans this week. Paolo is going to be our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. But of course, before that, we bring you up to speed on what's been happening. Another busy week in the world of retro. And uh, let's talk about, obviously, it was Halloween um, a bit earlier on this week. And there's been a lot of Halloween stories that have been submitted to our Discord. And we've had a you know, few of them sent to us on social media as well, including this uh, rather impressive new horror game, a homebrew game that's inspired by the likes of Silent Hill and Resident Evil called Cold Case that is coming to the Sega Saturn. Yeah, this looks uh, really interesting. So um, Tommy, one of our longtime followers, sent me this the other day and was like, you need to check it out. And I was like, I've already seen it. It looks fantastic. <laughs> so uh, as, you all, as you all probably know, I'm a big fan of you know, Resident Evil and Silent Hill and the Sega yep. Saturn. Um, so this is right up my street. So this uh, has been made by a guy called uh, Jay Beretta. And uh, I say made, it's it's still in development. You know, at the moment, yeah. it's, you know, it's a demo. And it's been submitted to the 29th annual Sega Saturn Showcase. Which I hadn't heard of this. This is like a homebrew gaming company. Yeah, like, is it Saturn, a game jam? It looks, like it's been, well, it looks like it's been going since the Saturn was launching pretty much. Yeah, so it, it's still, you know, it's since, like you say, 1994, since the, uh, the Saturn launched. What it is, is it's a contest for people to submit homebrews, you know, for a competition. and like game jam and it's on a sega extreme forum and you know you can go on there and see the submissions and play the demos and stuff you know it's a really cool community and uh the submissions end opened this week and they end on january 8th 2024 um and then you know it i guess it goes to a vote or something like that i'm not too sure um but yeah cold case uh has been submitted this week and uh yeah really interesting because of obviously graphically the sega saturn probably never quite looked as good for 3D as, as the PS1, but I think they've really captured the kind of Silent Hill vibe. Um, for, for, for me, you know, when when they're walking around and you're getting areas disappearing and then kind of this, like, fog that's happening, yeah. it, it, that's got the Silent Hill vibe for me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, everybody's kind of describing this as a Silent Hill Resident Evil. For me, and maybe Dan maybe Dan will agree here, I see it more as Silent Hill meets Alone in the Dark, you know, the original mm. kind of Alone in the Dark. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's a bit slower paced, um, is a bit jittery, and, I, you know, that might be just because obviously it's being, you know, single-handedly made by this Jay Beretta guy. Um, and, you know, for, for those, you know, obviously describing a game, it is a tank-controlled third-person survival horror game. You walk around, pick bullets up. But interestingly, you're a detective and kind of how you get around the world is like you will look in a mirror and you will go into the mirror and that will take mm. you to like the next area and then you will pick up a photograph and you'll look at the photograph in your inventory and it will take you to the area the photograph is so a church for example and it takes you to that church and obviously there's monsters running around for you to shoot etc it looks like a work in progress and uh, yeah 
I guess with, you know, a lot of attention that it's been uh, drawn from this article and stuff, I think maybe he'll probably get some help and stuff. And he's using this uh, engine called the Joe engine as well, which is an open source. Uh, <laughs> named after Handsome yeah. Joe, obviously. <laughs> yeah. it, it's and just Joe. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's named after me, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, I think this looks awesome. Yeah, really. I mean, I'm looking through, there's a there's like an eight, nine minute video that you can watch by a um, friend of uh, you guys, actually, Alex, who, who we know here in Nottingham. Um, his YouTube channel is called The Sega Guru. And he basically gives you a little preview of this because you can download a demo if you want to try it out on your Sega Saturn now, you know, if you can burn it to a disc if you've got a modded system or a, or maybe a, an SD card reader. And I think it looks quite playable already. I mean, yeah, graphically, obviously, the, like you said, that the Saturn was kind of geared up differently in terms of 3D graphics to something like the PlayStation. I don't think it used polygons. Instead, it was kind of like squares. Yeah, if I, think I recall. It, it, was it used, I can't remember which way around it is, but it either used triangles or it used squares and you had to, to make a triangle. You had to put two squares together <laughs> to make yeah, a triangle. Yeah, it's a PlayStation. Yeah. PlayStation was triangles, and I think, yeah, the quads, I think they called it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's kind of, you know, the voxel kind of shading and stuff on it as well. It's very uniquely a Saturn game, if you look at it graphically, you can definitely yeah. tell what platform it's running on. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, that a lot of people think that aesthetic hasn't aged very well, but I've got a feeling it kind of feels like it's coming back in vogue a bit now. Yeah, I for mean, retro gamers. I mean, you know, every couple of months I'm talking about Puppet Combo and, uh, yeah. you know, the games, the horror games they're putting out, which are all very Resident Evil you know, these old school tank control graphics kind of like yeah. inspired games. And there's definitely a big community and kind of like, uh, you know, there's, there's a big culture for it, if that makes sense. Um, and it's not just me, you know, rambling about it and stuff like that. There's a lot of people buying these games and playing these mods and playing these games and, you know, putting the videos out for them and getting, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of hype about them and stuff like that. So I'm all for it. But yeah, you're 100% right. You know, it's definitely got that satin look and, you know, some of the... uh the uh, the shapes polygons if you will you know clipping <laughs> through graphics yeah. and stuff like that but I think it really adds to the charm and the you know the style of the style at the time you know of the mid nineties and stuff so yeah I'm all for it and there's already some nice sound effects in there as well there's you know an inventory in there there's mm. weapons you can pick up there's enemies in the game already as well so um, you know it looks like it's it's pretty far along so if you want to download that demo that is free to play now uh, if you're into Sega Saturn horror games new game called Cold Case give it a try for free. Now, uh, while we're on the topic of Sega, we don't cover Sega's handheld beauty enough on this podcast, I don't think. Because, uh, have you got a Game Gear, Joe? I thought you had one in your collection. Oh, you've just embarrassed me in front of the whole world. I haven't got one. I haven't got one. It's, it's, I think Ravi might be selling his, actually. Yeah, he is, actually. He is. I'm watching it on eBay, but it's probably a bit rich for me because Ravi has a developer's one. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's collecting dust, you know, I haven't really used it but when when i did use it um this this would be a really interesting mod actually because i know a lot of the problems with uh the game gear is the audio and uh mm. the capacitors uh actually you know go quite a lot for the audio there's a lot of audio mods that are done but this seems to be a, a little kind of booster that's come out called the uh, clean amp duo yeah, which I think is a, a great solution because that's one thing when we talk about handhelds, I mean, you know, we cover, you know, OLED screen replacements and McWill mods and all that. Generally, the the modding community that we see tends to be focused on the visual aspect of it, doesn't it? Putting nicer screens and stuff into into retro handheld systems. But I think, yeah, audio is definitely one area that can be improved that doesn't always get as much love, I don't think. And actually, I don't know if you've got much experience with the Game Gear, but it actually does have a really nice audio. Well, nice music can be generated using the 
Game is that? dragon oh, I, I think um <laughs> like the audio you know when you're coming through the speakers it sounds all right but the actual yeah. output from the game gear like you know through the uh, audio jack isn't amazingly good and uh this actually clears it up as well so you know this um gives you like lower beats and higher trebles and stuff which um is really nice and it's a it's a tiny little device that actually fits inside the case and it also gives it a, a 200% boost as well. Just imagine your mum banging on your bedroom door when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that down. Can you imagine, like, I'd love to just go on a bus with this or something. It just really comes to it. Blasting out a double dragon yeah, in the back yeah, of the bus yeah. 200 I times do, later. I just yeah. need to say, I did have a Game Gear. I grew up with a Game Gear and we yeah, got, we got yeah. burgled. Well recovered. We got burgled and it got stolen and I've just never bought one back because they're always just they're broken and... You know, they need recapping and stuff like that. Just just to put that out there, just to clear my name. <laughs> well, I mean, I've got a Game Gear kind of, again, gathering dust in my cupboard at the moment. Again, it needs a recap. Like mm. you said, I mean, that's everyone I speak to, it's that no one really ever wants to do a yeah. Game Gear It's recap. supposed to be quite an like, intricate, tricky job as yeah. well. Apparently it stinks as well. Okay. Fishy capacitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's right. I mean, yeah, it's very small and fiddly job to do. And most recappers that I speak to are like, oh, I'll do Amiga's Fine Yeah, no problem. Oh, Game Gear, really? Well, I'll do it when I get time. Mm. So I haven't got around to actually getting that sorted yet. I probably should because I know these things can leak yeah. and destroy them. Well, so. well this, little, um, this uh, little stereo amplifier has basically got uh, speakers with it as well that give you those yeah. extra bass tones. And it's... It's not got much soldering required as well. So if it does get recapped, you know, you'll probably put that in and fit it as well. And it looks like the design of the board is uh, nice enough to kind of just slot in and, and fit where that audio jack is. So it's it's pretty much a, a custom-built kit for it. And it's it's 20 quid, you know, well, £19.20, yeah. which is just absolutely great price for, for a little mod like that. And they do they do audio mods as well for the Game Boy and uh, other systems. Yeah, it gives you much cleaner audio. Um, the output's really cleaned up, richer sounding bass. Uh, you'll hear tones in games you didn't hear before, they claim as well, like you said, you know, much louder too. So I think, yeah, for the sake of 20 quid, I mean, if, you, if you're improving your game gear, uh, maybe you've already replaced the screen, then uh, why not give the audio some love as well? Uh, that's available now from Retro6, and I will link that up in this week's show notes on your podcast app or head to the website at theretrohour.com. Now, we all have problems, you know, maybe updating our retro systems, you know. We did cover the uh, the new Windows update service. is available for, like, Windows 98 and XP again, so you can update your classic machines. Maybe you haven't updated your iPhone in a while. You know, th- this is stuff that plagues us all the time. But what about doing a remote update from a machine that is 12 billion miles away? It's pretty tough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is um, NASA's... Voyager probes. Now, I know you and I, Ravi, in particular, we, we've talked about on the podcast before that when we were kids, you know, we were quite nerdy about space. I used to have a, a telescope in my room. I used to get all the, the Patrick Moore space books. Oh, yeah. I remember getting the uh, NASA 25th year uh, VHS video for one of my birthdays. I used to get a National I'm- Geographic and have the, um, you know, 3D glasses. <laughs> Look at all the, yeah. the kind of, uh, you know, different planets and rocks. And uh, I think it was the, some of the Mars missions and stuff. And if you're talking about, you know, exploring 
the solar system, yeah, that's interesting enough. But obviously with the, the Voyager spacecraft, Voyager 1 and 2, that were launched uh, back in 1977, they've now been going into uh, deep space, interstellar space. They are very far away. I think they're actually the furthest, uh, furthest man-made things that have ever left Earth and kind of gone off into space now. Um, but the problem is, I mean, these things, you know, they're, they're rapidly approaching their 50th birthday soon. And I don't know about you, Ravi. I mean, I, I don't know much about rocket science. That might not be a surprise to most of our listeners. But I'm just amazed that these things are still powered on and running and still have fuel. Yeah, well, it seems that they're running off plutonium batteries, so I don't think there's much no. plutonium around <laughs> anymore. But, um, you know, that they're... they're they're basically running off plutonium and they've got a limited life, you know, uh, it's yeah. going to run till 2030, but they want to put these updates in there to extend the life. And, and you're right. They're essentially, you know, small computers that are going around and of course, you know, seventies technology. So um, one thing that I've been watching on YouTube is uh, there was a, a fleet of satellites called the uh, FLT SATCOM, which mm. were released in the seventies and eighties U S government ones. And, um, they actually, they've had them out, but of course they didn't have any encryption on them. Yeah. And uh, these satellites are basically put out there. And the whole idea was, uh, uh, you know, the government were the only people that can communicate with it because they were the only people with uh, that kind of range uh, to be able to reach it. Uh, but now people can with uh, uh, SDR, which is software defined radio. And uh, there's all these Brazilian loggers and uh, people that are actually pirating and kind of using these satellites uh, for communication. And there's a, a channel on YouTube at the moment that we'll put in the show notes that's actually going and like listening to these uh, people pirating and using these old satellites and all sorts of stuff going on uh, in the in the space wars, you know, <laughs> that uh, are starting to happen now in the modern world with kind of like warfare you know uh groups are uploading malware to satellites and stuff because it is just essentially a, a computer that's uh orbiting the earth but the reason we're talking about this is because like we said these voyager spacecrafts are approaching 50 years old now they've got stuff on there you know some issues like worn out thrusters and the power levels are decreasing because of you know they've been in space for so long but they're still providing really interesting data from interstellar space that is very valuable to the team at nasa but actually they found out there are it's reporting some like problems with you know the the telemetry and there are some glitches with the software that it's developed, but they reckon that they can upload a software patch remotely from Earth that should solve some of these problems and also shut down some parts of the system and clear some of the fuel lines as well that hopefully will keep it running for a few more years. So apparently they're working on a patch that is um, going to be uplinked to Voyager 2 to hopefully fix the computer issue on there. And then if it works well, they're going to um, put it onto the other one, Voyager 1 as well. I've been looking at some of the hardware that's on board here. Um, these machines actually run on uh, custom-made computers based on the 7400 series of CPUs from Texas Instruments. Oh, nice. Made in 1976. And uh, they're used in, you know, systems like the PDPs. Some of them use them, the mainframes, which is interesting. I mean, you think of that, you know, these systems have been running up and running. When that left Earth, I mean, you know, the Apple One was just released and the Commodore Pet. I mean, that's how old we're talking for them still to develop and do software updates on these machines, you know. Never mind the fact that it's so far away from Earth, the fact that these these must be some of the longest-running computers yeah, you, that you, are running Yeah, you know, daily. they went to, went to the moon on a on a pocket calculator, yeah. basically, <laughs> <laughs> with that kind of power. So it, it, it's amazing kind of what they've done. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's great that you can, you know, do an update that far. <laughs> it's it's yeah. absolutely insane. And uh can't imagine what it's going to be like in the future. And also, you know what's going to get abandoned and what's going to be able to get used. And I know that 
there was a BBS um, satellite up there somewhere as well that you can communicate with. So uh, a ham radio, I think. Um, yeah, so there's some interesting stuff. I always, I always love a bit of space chat. Yeah, and uh, never complain about doing Windows updates again. <laughs> these guys have got to do a much bigger job. So, well, yeah, good luck with the update, the, the NASA team who are working on Voyager. Now, um, I love this headline when I read it. I mean, kind of following on from talking about the Sega Saturn a few minutes ago. Um, this headline here is that Abenik is making a Sega Saturn handheld, which is kind of true, kind of not as well. Kind of looks a little bit inspired by the Sega Saturn, and it can run Sega Saturn emulators. But actually, there's quite a lot more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, I... I- read this you know and thought oh wicked take us out and handheld and didn't really kind of think much more of it until i started reading it later on you know when i read it tonight and it was like oh okay so it's it is just an emulator in there which runs ps1 dreamcast and sega saturn and from what i can see it runs it really 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 well but the reason it's kind of capturing oh it's sega saturn is because of the controller, the handheld of its itself, is based around the Sega Saturn controller, isn't it? Yeah, the kind of mm. styling of it um, is is Sega Saturn, but also like Abenik, we've had a load of listeners and backers that have said to us, you know, they create some really good handhelds before, and uh, mm. people seem to have had good experience with them and their emulators. Yeah, I mean, this is essentially a, a handheld Android device. Um, so it can run a lot of emulators on there. Pretty much anything you could run on Android, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks like it's got a pretty nice screen. Like you said, Joe, the, the main thing about this is that the button layout is heavily inspired, you could say, by the um, standard Sega Saturn controller in terms of button layout. Um, it's got a D-pad that kind of reminds me a bit of the D-pad you might get on a, an Xbox 360 controller. <laughs> it looks a bit like it might be lifted off one of those. Um, and also the colour schemes as well. I mean, they're showing one here on this uh, article on gamesradar.com that I'll link up as well, um, which is kind of in the, the colour of the Japanese Sega Saturn, isn't it? That kind of white colour. Yeah, they've got the, they have, if you scroll through them, they have got the, you know, the PAL American black one as well. But yeah, the Japanese yeah. one seems to be the one people are talking about, you know, grab the headline, if you will. And, you know, it's got the colourful buttons and, uh, you know, the, the green, yellow and blue buttons. And then it's got the, you know, the maroon, purple start and select and shoulder buttons with the white case. Um, and it, do, it does look really, really nice. But essentially, for me, what it comes down to, and I'm not, I'm not bashing it, I'm, I'm all for these, you know, these handheld emulators. And it is making me think it's about time I probably get one. Um, mm. It comes down to is it, it looks like the, the Japanese Sega Saturn one. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, controller. That's that's what it comes down to. And they also do them in various different colours as well. I see there's like a blue version of it. There's also, one thing that kind of catches my eye, there's like a translucent version as well. We don't get transparent plastics enough anymore. No, we don't. <laughs> Me and my yeah. brother were talking so. about that the other day, our, our old translucent Game Boy pocket. And we were saying yeah. we, missed, we missed that era of, of the 90s where everything was translucent. Your phone, you know, you, even your blow-up chairs and stuff like that. Yeah. I used to have a yeah, transparent house phone. That nice. would light up when someone was making a phone call back <laughs> in the day. That was pretty cool. Uh, do we know pricing on this yet? So at the moment, it looks like there's a YouTube channel that's kind of showing a, a teaser trailer, but I'm not sure whether. So I imagine with this kind of thing, they're generally not all that expensive. These little kind of handheld uh, Android doesn't devices. Doesn't look like there is one. Um, I always find mm. these go one way or the other. They're either generally yeah. very cheap, but you know, still decent quality, or they tend to be on the completely other side. Like, well, well looking on the site, you know, some of the other ones that they've got. 87 US dollars and uh, yeah. some go down to 59 and then some are up to like 137. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pillow. But you know, them. sounds reasonable for what it is, I think. And again, it's you know, I remember when these Android kind of handhelds first came out. You know, when we were first covering them, like five, six years ago. Generally, at most, they could kind of cover. They could run like you know, maybe Mega Drive and Super Nintendo games. They all struggle a bit when you got to like the thirty-two bit generations. But it seems like now the you know the the same that it can run Nintendo sixty-four. Oh, and Dreamcast games on here even so you know they're definitely coming along a long way so um, yeah hopefully not too expensive and a nice little way to play 32-bit games on the go so if you want to check out that little teaser trailer I'll shove that in our show notes as well now this is something that I've been seeing quite a lot of actually um, not all in a positive way so it'll be interesting to hear what you guys think of this because uh, Data East's gory 90s brawler Night Slashers is getting a full remake treatment with uh Visuals that seem to be dividing fans somewhat. Sorry, that name just reminds me of going to the toilet at night. <laughs> <laughs> at 4am. That is brilliant. So I'm I am torn here. Like, so I'm a I'm a fan of Night Slashers. I think I feel like Night Slashers is such a underrated kind of like I don't want to use the word hidden gem, but it it's you know, it never got a home port. It was a beat 'em up in the arcades in I want to say 93, it came out side-scrolling, mm. you know, belt-scrolling, beat them up in the vein of, you know, Final Fight, Streets of Rage, and it was by Data East. Yeah. And the selling point of it is it's really gory. <laughs> you know, imagine Splatterhouse kind of like visuals. Um, you could pick, you know, three characters. I think it was three players as well. And, you know, you could be like a, like a magician kind of vampire Van Helsing kind of guy, or you could be this little ninja girl. Or you could be the big slow guy who had like big metal arms and you fight zombies and vampires and werewolves and Frankenstein's monsters and stuff. But it's got a real like 80s, early 90s horror horror film charm to it. Like, yeah, you know, when you beat these zombies up, like you smash their faces in and when their bodies fall on the floor, they turn to gunge and melt away. And it's got that real like kind of like... Like kind of like sound effects to it, and squelchy, really squelchy, and you could get swords and knives and chop people up and stuff. Really, really, really over the top kind of pixelated gore, and yeah, they're they're remaking this, and this has been r- rumored since two thousand twenty twenty one. This has been rumored yeah. since that uh, that Forever Entertainment have got their hands on it, and uh, they were behind the remakes of Panzer Dragoon, House of the Dead, and Front Mission, and I'll admit. I wasn't massively impressed with the House of the Dead remake. I was really I remember you saying on the show actually. Yeah, yeah I was really excited for it and I I just yeah, I wasn't that impressed with it unfortunately. And I know I'm usually quite a positive guy with these things. Um and I'm sure I'll pick this up as well cuz like I say I'm a fan of Night Slashers. I've never played it in the real arcade. I've only ever played it on, you know, on Mame and Pandora and stuff like that. But graphically, yes, it looks pretty much like Streets of Rage 4. You know, they've gone, yeah, which again was something that divided fans. A lot of people hated that kind of flat, kind of comic book style almost. Didn't yeah. They? And, you know, I know I get that's kind of like where we've gone with things, but they've really toned down the violence of it and they've really toned down the animation of it because it's like watching the trailer here. When you kill the zombies, you know, they just flash away, you know, like on the floor, they don't melt away there's no squelching there's no like Mm. none of that kind of gunge gore or anything like that and it's it's just like they just they seem to have reduced the frames of animation you know in the last 30 years like it's it's yeah it's it's weird you know and i I heard an expression which i'm going to butcher the other day and it's like 
back in the day with the pixel graphics, people would use the pixels and the old graphics to try and make the most beautiful looking game they could possibly make. And now when people do these kind of like pixel or hand-drawn graphics, which are inspired by it, they try to make it look as basic as they can and get away with it. Right. And I feel that's what's happened here. Gameplay-wise, it looks perfectly fine. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It's, it looks like a solid beat, beat em up I just think Night Slash's charm was the fact that it was really over-the-top gory. You know, and don't get me wrong, there's still zombies with their arms and faces hanging off and stuff, but it doesn't, it's just not very interactive by the looks of things, unfortunately. Well, there is a comment here that um, it kind of sums it up, really. So someone said it looks like a 2008 Adobe Flash game yeah. that you play in the web browser. You know, stylistically, the, the look of it. And I must admit, I hadn't played this game before, um, but I went on to YouTube to check out what the original looked like. And it is a gorgeous-looking yeah. game from yeah, 1993, yeah. you know, graphically beautiful. And then I, I followed a few links, and people are like, well, you know, you can download it on the Nintendo Switch. It's yep. on the eStore. It's on the eStore. And yeah. I went on there, but actually, they've deleted it now. Oh, the original. Of they have. So yeah. obviously, in preparation for this coming out, I yeah. imagine, yeah. Um, which is a shame. Because I looked at that, I thought that looks fun. I wouldn't mind downloading that on my Switch, the original. But um, I guess I want people playing the new version now, which at the time of recording, they haven't confirmed which platforms it's going to be available for. But I mean, generally, these these kind of games always come out on the Switch yeah. at least, don't they? And probably yeah. PS4, PS5. No release date as yet as well. You know, they kind of missed out on the, the Halloween season by the looks of it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, the only thing this has really done for me is make me want to play the original. Yeah, I mean... Try and try and emulate it, download it or something. You know, it, it's yeah. it's a basic beat 'em up. It's it's not got you know, it's you know, punch and jump and then hold the two buttons together and you do a special kind of thing. You know, there's a few magic yeah. specials in there. The the main selling point of it was was the visuals and it is. It's it's just a wicked looking, you know, horror game, you know, but it's a beat 'em up and mm. which is just, you know, two of my favourite things put together and I'm 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 sat here like I, I'm 100% going to buy it, <laughs> the new one, yeah. and play it and, you know, probably enjoy it for what it is. But it, yeah, I think some attention to detail to the gunge and, you know, people melting away, etc. I mean, to be fair, I'm looking at the original, they do flash away, but, you know, after you kill them, I'm watching it now, but mm. you punch their heads off or you punch them in half and then they land on the floor and flash away kind of thing. Didn't see much of that in the uh, in the new in the new one. Yeah, if anything, it should make it more gory, yeah. you know, with the graphical advancements. Absolutely. So, yeah, take yeah, a leaf out of more maybe they're reading the. Well, there you go. Maybe the reading the comments and they're going to take some on board. I mean, it's not out yet, so, you know, there is, it's time for stuff to change. So if you to check that out, if you've never played that game, though, maybe it's going to you know spur a few people to uh, check it out, or the original game like me. So uh, Night Slashes is the name of the game, and I'll link that little trailer up. And, of course, everything else we talk about, I save you the job of Googling around. I put them all in the show notes. Just have a look on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we are into November. A good little reminder to everyone that we'll only be a couple of weeks until our next patrons hang out that we do at the end of the month. You know, that's going to come around quickly and then uh, it'll be uh, into the Christmas season. So if you'd like to join us for it, we had a really good one this weekend just gone, didn't we? We talked about so many different things. I dressed as David Brent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a Halloween party. Still can't uh, get the grease out of my hair. Well, I was pleased he did because I came on the air. Uh, because basically, if you haven't joined us for a, our patrons hangout before, we send out a Google Meet link to all our patrons, so everyone can come on. Basically like a massive Zoom call, isn't it? We all get together for a couple of hours, the last Sunday of the month usually, and just, you know, geek out about all things retro and tech and stuff. And I thought, well, with it, with it being like day before Halloween, I'll wear a Halloween costume. So I had my Ghostbusters outfit on and stuff. And I came on and uh, had that shocking realisation that nobody else was actually dressed up at first. And you never want to be that 
that knobhead that turns up to the party, the only one that's in fancy dress, do you? <laughs> uh, to be, there was a luckily, few people by the end of yeah, it. There was, luckily, yeah. But Ravi came on to be the uh, the second knobhead to dress up, so I was quite pleased <laughs> about that. And then, uh, yeah, there was a few more as well, so I didn't feel so bad in the end. But yeah, I mean, it's always just a giggle, isn't it? We all just uh, have so yeah, much fun it, it on the It was interesting. We went for a series of topics and we ended up talking about theme parks as well, which is uh, yeah. <laughs> always good to hear different people's stories and, you know, about experiences from theme parks around the world as well. Yes, I mean, we cover all kinds of stuff as well, all showing off new pickups. And, uh, you know, I hear about so many things that I wasn't aware of, you know, add-ons for old systems. We're talking about 3DO SD card readers and, you know, all kinds of topics on it. So if you want to join us for this month's, now would be a very good time to sign up to our Patreon. You'll get an invite to it at the end of the month. And also you get some other perks for being a patron of this podcast too. Obviously helping us keep the lights on. So in return, we give you a longer podcast each week. We're about to do another two or three new stories just for our patrons. You get the show ad-free. If I can get it out early to patrons, I do try my best. You know, some weeks... I get it edited a bit early, so I get it out to you on time. And also, if you um, join us as a gold member or above, you get access to all 38 episodes of our special bonus secret podcast called The Retro Hour After Hours, where we've got all kinds of things on here. I mean, I've been looking back through the list of the last 38 episodes. Most recent ep, we've done uh, The Retro Years, going back to 1995. We did um, the most overrated games. We had a bit of a mastermind quiz couple of months ago we did one all about video game piracy we talked about um amiga games we still play uh, the best multiplayer games the nintendo 64 special all episodes that we've done over the last few months and if you'd like to get access to all 38 episodes of that if you join us on patreon now you get a little link to unlock them all as well so really if you enjoy what we do great way to support the podcast and make sure that we can continue into 2024 Okay, the next thing to go inside the world of the Italian Amiga demo and gaming scene from back in the day with this week's special guest, the wonderful Paolo Durso, is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And uh, you know that Ravi and I always love geeking out about the Amiga and the demo scene. And our guest this week does as well. Uh, a lovely guy who I had the pleasure of hanging out with in Italy very kindly invited me to this wonderful event that he put on out there that, of course, I was talking about on the podcast a couple of months ago, the uh, Passione Amiga Day. And uh, I thought I'd welcome on the organiser as well, because um, we actually had a few uh, late-night chats in the various cafes and bars around Spalletti all about his history with the Amiga, which was just fascinating. So I thought I'd have him on the podcast to talk a bit more about him. So let's uh, welcome on Paolo Durso, also known as uh, Modem on the scene as well from uh, Darkage Software, the Amiga scene group Exone back in the day. He's a coder musician, writer, and event organizer as well. So welcome to the podcast, Paolo. Ah, hi, everyone. <laughs> so nice <laughs> to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, really nice to have you on. Like I said, you know, we had some fascinating late night chats over uh, some delicious wine in Spoleto last month, talking about your history with the Amiga. So it's very nice to have you on the podcast to do some reminiscing with us. And we always like to kind of find out where our guest journey began. So, I mean, what initially got you interested in computers? Where did the whole thing start? Uh, we are talking about secondary school and uh, it was something like uh, 10 years old when a friend of mine, uh, we, we all had in uh, or Nintendo NES or Atari 2600. And a friend of mine told me like, oh, that, that's really, oh, that's nothing. You should come to my home. I have an Amiga. You, the graphic is something unbelievable, better than the arcade rooms. 
And I was like, uh, seriously? Okay, well, okay, I will come this afternoon with a friend of mine. And we were shocked. <laughs> the first time I saw an Amiga in action, it was something unbelievable. My This friend mm. of mine was right. The, the graphics, the sound was better than the arcades. So I had to wait one year before to get an Amiga. And then I started to play like crazy. And I found out that in my small town, there, there was a demo group called Soft One. They were bigger than me. And they used to meet in the only computer store in the afternoon. And I was going there and I was asking them, uh, can you teach me how to, to program uh, video games or demos? And, uh, you know, the, uh, the 90s. So they were like, mm. yeah, sure. Come, behind, come, come outside and behind the, the, the store. We will teach you. And they were beating me like crazy because they, oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, ah, you, what do you want to learn? A palm, palm. And I was like, I want to learn programming. Palm, palm. And they were <laughs> beating wow. me like there is no tomorrow. <laughs> I was um, wondering what the Amiga scene was like in Italy then, because uh, did Commodore have like a big presence there? You know, we were always looking, uh, we, the demo sceners from Italy, we were looking at the north of Europe. Uh, so Sweden, Finland, Denmark, uh, and uh, we were like, wow, okay, must be really cold there. So they have time to stay at home and, and learn how to make great effects. And in Italy, it was always so warm. So uh, should I spend another afternoon working on some routines? Uh, let's go out and play soccer. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, Paolo, I mean, as, as well as, you know, the stuff you do on the Amiga, you're a very accomplished musician as well. I know you've had over 22 albums. You've played over 1,200 live concerts as well. I mean, did you start using your uh, Amiga when you got one for music when you were a kid? To be honest, no. To be honest, uh, I I used the Amiga to to make video games. I started with Amos and uh, Amos. Sorry, my Italian accent <laughs> is getting <Either> works. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was selling this my video games to in the in, at school to my classmates. And in in my school, everybody had an Amiga. Everybody had an Amiga uh, here back in time in the times. Uh, and um, then when in 2002 I decided to quit uh, the Amiga world because I was really pissed off by the Amiga Inc. Uh, by the decision. You, you remember this Amiga Anywhere and Amiga DA and I was like... Uh, ah. Yeah, when they were trying to kind of do a, like a Java style um, yes, uh, yes, thing and, and this was uh, very much af after ESCOM, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh no, I don't like this anymore. Okay, I'm out. And uh, I, I wanted to really do something different so I uh, started uh, to work on music. <laughs> it took me some time be before I became a professional musician. But now those times are already almost over. So I came back to Amiga, to programming. And I found out that Amiga is really like a good bottle of wine. So it gets better aging. <laughs> well, where would you buy an Amiga then in Italy? Would there be uh, like a retail shop or would there be any Italian Amiga companies? The Commodore Italia was uh, very strong. I remember always uh, watching on TV, on national channels, um, advertising. 
uh, about Amiga and Commodore. So in the computer store in our town, uh, they were basically only Amiga uh, for sale. They, they, they were selling also PC, but on in the window and inside they were... Uh, hundreds of Amiga boxed games and uh, Amiga models. So, um, and then, yes, we had a lot of stores um, uh, that were um, making advertising on uh, video game magazines. We, by the way, in Italy, we still have the games machine, uh, which just uh, celebrated the 400 issue, and it's the longest living uh, video game magazine in the world. And still, believe it or not, um, they started writing again about Amiga. And uh, in every issue, they have 16 pages about uh, Amiga. This is incredible. <laughs> 16 pages on a, a mainstream gaming magazine yeah, about yeah. the Amiga. Wow. Yeah, you can yeah, find uh, the games machine in every news agent. They have a very good distribution. And the quality of the magazine is really, really high. Also, we have also in Italy Zap magazine, again, which is not a translation of the um, British edition. Actually, uh, the old uh, the Italian Zap uh, uh, writers uh, uh, started again to to publish the magazine uh, you need to have a subscription so you you can you cannot buy zap uh, on news agents uh, as well like <laughs> passion amiga the other amiga magazine we have but still this is a very good sign this is really a very good sign that people need the paper i love to to, to read uh, magazines on paper when I'm mm. when I sit on the toilet or when I'm at the beach. So, <laughs> I mean, kind of taking it back to you know when you first got involved in the demo scene in the '90s. Because I mean, I remember you know like, like most kids playing games on my Amiga was like the main thing that I did when I first got it. And then going into my local computer store and they they sold public domain discs in there and picking up one that they were showing on the machine of like I still can't remember what demo it was, but I remember seeing the effects and just being fascinated by it. How did you discover the Amiga demo scene yourself and what kind of drew you into it? Uh, well, I remember that um, those uh, guys, the soft one guys, uh, the, this demo group uh, from my hometown, they were bringing uh, some effects on floppy disks to show in the computer store. Like, ah, oh, look, I did this effect, this and that. And I was like, ah, oh, can you play with that? No, it's not a video game. And bam, they were beating me again. <laughs> but then uh, one guy, one of them, uh, copied some some demos to me and uh, he gave me four or, or five floppy disks. And he told me like, look at these ones. Then you will uh, start to understand what we're talking about. And uh, oh my God, <laughs> I was really shocked. So my goal was no more to make video games on Amiga, but was to make demos. And I needed to learn uh, assembler. And I remember that I contacted uh, one guy living in Tuscany that was um, in the demo scene and he was uh, very good with assembler. And uh, I I wrote him and asked, can I come a few days to your town and I will book a hotel and you will teach me something? I will pay for it. And he was like, yeah, sure. So I, <laughs> that's where I started. And oh my God, Assembler was so complicated at the beginning because I was used with Amos. So open, screen open and bam, the, the, the screen is open. But with Assembler, you had to uh, reserve uh, memory, then the copper list uh, and everything. Yeah, going from Amos, that was ba it was a variation of BASIC, wasn't it, Amos? And then obviously Assembler. I mean, I remember, you know, I think I got a, a demo disc of that Dev Pack, which was an Amiga Assembler on the front cover of Amiga Format magazine and just trying to follow the tutorials, but my head just couldn't get in that space. It is very complicated. Yeah, yeah. And I, and then we, me and my friends, we founded a demo group called the X Zone, 
And we started to release some intro, some BBS intro. We had a guy that uh, was running a BBS back in the days. And uh, we were so happy because at some point, uh, uh, some guys from on IRC from Sweden contacted us like, ah, we like your productions. We would love to join and we would love to open a Swedish section of uh, East Zone. And we were so excited, like, wow, because they are from Sweden. They know how to make demos. They they must be cool. And uh, we lost the control of the group, basically, because they started to release some very, very lame stuff. And they let something like 50 people join that we didn't know who they were. And they were like, oh, terrible demo sinners. So in 1994, we decided to leave the the group and to found a new one, being much more careful and the 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 name was dark age and Mm. uh, there we started really somehow some people from another demo group uh, ram jam uh, which is an an italian demo group which was like wow the main one uh, decided to join dark age this was a really wow exciting for us and the quality started to be better and better and better. And then we started to work also again on some commercial software. And that's all the story. <laughs> yeah. And um, well, I mean, just thinking of kind of where you grew up, because I mean, obviously I was out there the other week in, in Spoleto, an ancient city in, you know, the wine district of, of Italy, in very central Italy, but it's a very small place, isn't it? So, I mean, kind of thinking about, you know, the, the Amiga scene there. I mean, were there a lot of kind of Amiga sceners around you locally? Yes, yes. Um, Spoleto is a, is a town with um, 35,000 inhabitants and there were a lot of people um, not not only owning an Amiga but doing something with Amiga. So we found a graphic artist, we found uh, uh, one guy that also was a coder and better than me, by the way, and we found uh, two guys that were making music and then a um, classmate uh, was doing music as well. So uh, everybody, Amiga was really multimedia. Well, um, thanks to Deluxe Paint, uh, Pro Tracker, and uh, Amo Amos or uh, Asmoan, the assembler, everybody was able to do something. And now it's easy, you know, like, okay, I can uh, run PowerPoint and do something uh, or uh, Photoshop. But back in the days, Amiga was the only computer where you could really easily create something that was a uh, mm. some magic of amiga so um, even uh, if uh, i'm not from rome or milan uh, there was a very strong amiga user base uh, here in umbria i was wondering uh you know you mentioned the scandinavian countries there as well and they had a a, a very big identity with a demo scene what was the identity with the italian scene uh, what kind of stood out and what was your style <laughs> we um, and I say um, all the Italian uh, demo sceners um, started to do it for fun mostly so even uh, the this group Ram Jam um, uh, had a section uh, called the Bloody Fires Design <laughs> 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 and they were using they were releasing some very serious demos like uh, It Can't Be Done which is a fantastic demo for Amiga 1200. And we as well, we started to um, to release a serious stuff under the Dark Age label. And also we had a parallel demo group. And we were, um, yeah, under different nicknames, we were releasing really uh, silly stuff. <laughs> because well, we knew... Well- 
we knew we could never reach uh, the level of quality of the Scandinavians. That's why. <laughs> well, back in the day, I mean, you went under the demo scene handle, and obviously everyone on the demo scene needed a, a catchy handle. You went by the name Modems. I mean, why did you pick that name? And were you immersed much in early online culture? Uh, well, I chose that that nickname because uh, I had a modem at home, <laughs> so I could connect on internet. And uh, at that times, uh, you had to connect uh, to the bank, to one of the banks, and the banks were giving you internet connection. And then from the banks, I found a way to connect uh, illegally to some uh, uh, connections and basically to be always online without paying. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes. And oh, my gosh. And um, then a friend of mine uh, um, found uh, the same method and he started to to buy hard disks over hard disks and to download a lot of uh, cracked stuff from from some BBS from Venezuela, something like that, until mm. the police uh, catched him. But I was very lucky because actually I was more interested in the demo scene. So for me, it was like, okay, let's go on IRC where I can chat uh, with the, those Scandinavians because they were all online. <laughs> and from Italy, nobody was online at the time. Yeah, we were talking about that before, the fact that, you know, you kind of miss those IRC days, you know, even though Discord, obviously a lot of people are on there, it doesn't quite have the same feel that IRC had. Yes, exactly. I, I miss very, very much the IRC days. And uh, recently I switched on one old Amiga of mine, which, had, uh, which has an hard disk, and I found uh, some logs of some chat on IRC and I was ah very nostalgic of those times. Now I don't know, maybe I'm too old, but I cannot enjoy Discord. Somehow it mm, it doesn't have the same feeling and Facebook as well. I can chat. Yeah. Now they added this uh, feature of this public chats on Facebook, but I don't know, they don't smell good to me. <laughs> yeah, it feels a bit sterile and corporate, doesn't it, still? I guess that's the difference, <laughs> yeah, rather than the homebrew nature of IRC. Well, I mean, talking about, you know, the productions that you worked on back in the day as well. So obviously, you know, 1994, you, you founded your group. What were some of the productions that you worked on initially and kind of what memories have you got of those early productions that you made? Oh, I was so happy because I I focused on working on intros because for me, an intro is a challenge uh, stronger than a demo because you are very limited with the kilobytes. Explain what an intro is to people that might not have heard of them. Oh, yes. An intro is like a demo. So it's a sort of uh, hmm, abstract video clip, let's say, where everything you see is made in real time. So there are no pre-calculated animations. And uh, while a demo back in the days uh, could be on one or even more than one floppy disk, an intro ha has a, a limit of size of uh, 4 kilobytes, 40 kilobytes, 64 kilobytes. Uh, depending of the competition. And I loved to do an in intros in 40 kilobytes because then all the music had to be really minimal, the graphics as well, and the programming. You, you really had to uh, optimize your code. <laughs> and I was somehow, I don't want to say I was good in that, but I was decent <laughs> to do that. Were there any like demos that you saw that really stood out to you that kind of acted as inspiration and uh, that you remember today? Oh, I was uh, really shocked uh, when I saw uh, State of the Art by Spaceballs and then Nine Fingers by the same group. And those were like, wow, video clip. I loved also Jesus on S 
which was a demo, I don't remember, 20 minutes long, something like really unbelievable. unbelievable. Mm. And I loved, of course, World of Commodore 92 from Sanity. And uh, what else? Hmm. Then I have to say that uh, at the second half of the 90s, people were leaving the Amiga demo scene because uh, Commodore failed and not everybody trusted uh, SCOM and Gateway. So people just left uh, the, the platform. But uh, mm, I really have good memories of demos of 96, 97, 98. Uh, one demo that I really like and I know it's not that popular. Um, it's uh, a demo from uh, Ram Jam, Massive Killing Capacity. Massive Killing Capacity right. is, is a demo released in 96. And in my opinion, it's one of the highest quality Italian demos on, on the Amiga. And then, of course, uh, uh, other demos which were for me like wow uh, amazing the black the black lotus demos like capture capture dreams uh, tint uh, goa which are from 96 97 98 and uh, i was strong at that time in the mega demo scene i knew all the demo sceners and for me it was like um, okay i was on irc or i was i was going to some demo parties but it was like uh, uh, meeting with really close friends that was much more than just programming it was like wow that's the community I want to to be to be part. Was there a kind of time when the demo scene split away from the the, the piracy scene in the UK? We had a lot of the you know kind of cracktros and stuff like that. Was there a, a, any point where they kind of split off? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I have to say that the demo scene comes from the crack uh, uh, scene because it was a challenge to maybe in a, on a floppy disk you just had uh, four, five, or ten kilobytes free, and the crackers had to crack the game and also to in those little space to add a crack throw, so a sort of intro where they were um, promoting like, look, we cracked this game, but we were the first ones. Uh, some groups like uh, Fairlight, uh, Scoopex, uh, Razor uh, 1911, they, they were making crack throws. But after that, the demo scene took uh, the, its own way when uh, people started to realize like, okay, these effects I see on screen, these are very beautiful. Sometimes uh, they were even more beautiful than the game itself. Mm. So people start to realize, okay, we can really do some kind of art on that. Now it's easy to create art. You just go on uh, AI and uh, you type, uh, okay, draw an image with this characteristic, uh, with the Roger Dean style, uh, or uh, I don't know, (laughs) any artist style, and bam, you have an image or even um, a video. But in the 90s, you, you had to create everything by yourself. So the demo scene, and now I'm very happy that finally is recognized by UNESCO. Uh, the demo scene was really a group of uh, clever artists <laughs> that were mm. even doing that for free using nicknames, not, re- really, not even their real names. And it's interesting, the culture around it as well. I mean, you mentioned then that you used to attend demo parties. So what parties did you used to attend, you know, in the 90s and what are some of your best memories of going to parties? Oh, I have one story to tell. I I was not going well in uh, uh, during high school because I was spending most of my time uh, <laughs> programming on Amiga. So mm. when I asked to my parents, 
because I was 17 years old. Can I go to Paris uh, to Saturn party because I have an intro that I believe it will win the competition? They told me, of course, no, because uh, uh, your results are really bad. So no, no, you have to stay at home and study. But I really wanted to go to Saturn Party in Paris. So I told to my, to my parents, listen, I will go for the weekend to study together at the house of a, of a friend of mine. And we will study because also his results are not good. And then I jumped on the train and I went to Florence when I met um, another demo singer. And we went with his car to Paris. And uh, we didn't have mobile phones back in the time. And during that weekend uh, in, uh, in Umbria, because we are uh, this region, the central region of Italy is very seismic. We had a major earthquake and many people died and many houses collapsed. Uh, it was a tragedy. And I didn't know anything because I was in Paris at the party where I arrived second, by the way. <laughs> and, oh, <wow. laughs> and, I called, um, and I called my mom like on Saturday afternoon. And my mom was like, oh, my God, you're alive. And I say, yeah, mom, I'm very tired because I'm studying a lot. How are you, mom? I told you I'm <laughs> tired. <laughs> and how's so. your friend? Oh, okay. And, uh, and the family and everyone. I said, mom, why are you so worried? We're just studying. I know I, I never studied before, but <laughs> it's okay. I, I can do it. <laughs> and then I found out. And then she told me, how was the earthquake? Was it strong? And I was like, oh, my God, probably they had an earthquake. <laughs> they didn't know how strong. And I was like, no, nah, we didn't feel it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you didn't get busted then by your mom. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote, uh, one year ago, I wrote uh, a book about uh, all the Amiga memories. And uh, it's called the Dark Age Software, the, the History. At the moment, it's only in Italian language because I did it uh, mostly for my child uh, you know, to, to, to don't lose the memories because I have two small kids and when they will be big, uh, I will look uh, at their eyes, I will be old uh, and like, oh, what's this old computer, Amiga? So I, I wrote uh, this and I gave them uh, last Christmas as a present to my parents and my mom. Ah, that's why, okay, you, you, you told me you didn't feel that earthquake. She did remember that episode. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I was, I was wondering how long it generally took to put a demo together and uh, how, how did you go about planning it? I will tell you about the, the, the latest demo I released because I came back to the Amiga demo scene and uh, I released uh, this year at Revision Demo Party a demo, an Amiga demo called Neocolora which also arrived second. <laughs> and, nice. um, well, I, I haven't touched the assembler, Amiga assembler for 20 years. And at the beginning it was incredibly difficult. I didn't remember even how to edit uh, the startup sequence on Amiga, <laughs> but, uh, it took me something like six months working almost every evening, uh, on it. So, yeah. And, uh, when I was, uh, in the nineties, uh, I would say the same. Yeah, six months uh, is a good time. Did you ever plan them out on like paper or anything then, or was it just straight to the computer? Straight to the computer. I, I just in the nineties, I found some some paper books where I was writing some code in Amos <laughs> when my parents were not letting me use the Amiga. Then I was programming on paper and then copying on Amos and see if it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> 
Well, I know that you've, you've done a lot of productions over the years, and one thing that you're kind of famed for is kind of putting hidden Easter eggs in demos, you know, even like the, the 4K ones as well. I mean, tell us about some of the, the hidden stuff that you put in there, and wh- why did you do that? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, I remember, for example, that I had some discussions on IRC with some uh, other demo seniors, and I didn't want to start a real flame, so I didn't put uh, some uh, uh, hating uh, stuff. Uh, only, you know, in the, inside the demo, you can put a, some greetings, and normally you greet uh, the other demo groups, or some uh, bad words uh, against a specific demo senior. But I didn't want to start a public flame, so I almost uh, always uh, added some secret part, <laughs> and then I started... To, to write really bad stuff to, to back in the times like how did you access these then with the like kind of secret key combinations or oh, clicking certain uh, bits of the screen i use uh, always the method the click the right mouse button during the demo <laughs> right that easy basic yes <laughs> Well, one thing I used to, you know, reading like demo scene disc mags back in the day, they were, you know, really popular on the demo scene. And you often had, you know, similar to the the music charts commercially, there was a demo scene chart that would come out regularly. I mean, did the the demo scene charts mean much to you back in the day? Was it quite, you know, a good feeling if you made it into them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, The Italian demo scene uh, was full of people, even though we didn't have uh, great talents. Uh, like the Scandinavians, but uh, um, we had a lot of uh, magazines, for example, in Italian languages. One was called Infamia, and uh, (laughs) they also had, uh, or and another um, from the generation, we had had a lot, a lot of Italian um, disc magazines, and um, very often I was part of the best coder and best organizer charts, and for me it was like fuel on my engine, I needed them to, to go on and make more, more demos, more stuff. And also, we were, uh, my group, Dark Age, uh, was working on uh, Showtime, which was a disc magazine started by Ram Jam, this uh, legendary Italian demo group. And then after three issues, um, they were tired, they were older than us. So they, they, told, they told me, uh, do you want to, to take uh, this magazine? And it was like, oh, of course. And we released the 17 issues and we also had the demo charts. Uh, so best coder, best graphic artist, best musician. Um, of course, I wasn't uh, <laughs> in, in those charts because the, there, are, there are a lot of people better than me. But it was really, I could really feel that everybody uh, wanted to be in there. <laughs> it mm. was really a good method to keep the demo scene alive. Well, the interesting thing was I always thought, you know, uh, demo scene groups are ideal for releasing games because they know what they're doing with uh, coding and can create some quite ambitious stuff. Um, one was Tales from Heaven, which you worked on, which I uh, remember worked uh, pretty well on uh, Amigo 40. Um, uh, what, what was the process of developing that and how, how did you get involved? Oh, yes. Uh, I had a good contact uh, with a Spanish, um, uh, Ruben Elcaniz, which is a Spanish programmer and a Spanish demo singer. And he showed me his uh, uh, 3D engine, which was like, wow, wow, wonderful. Because most of the 3D engines uh, in the demos are very tricky. 
like okay they run fast but there are no collisions uh, there are no possibility to be um, managed by joypad or keyboard and so on and so on but his 3d engine was really uh, made it was made for a demo but it could work for a game so i told him like okay why don't we show the world that Amiga can have a, a, a 3D platform game like Mario 64. And he was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I had contact with Epic Marketing at the time because I was working already for them. And uh, I told them about the project and they asked, can you show us a demo of it? We, we will sponsor it, but we need to see first. So we prepared um, a first uh, demo of the game with one level. And they were like, oh my God, we want this. We want this. <laughs> And they waited long because then the development time took um, two years. And uh, at the end of uh, 2000, um, the Amiga market was shrinking uh, very, very much. So Epic told us, uh, guys, we waited two years, but now it's really time to release the game. And we knew, um, we, the development team, knew that the game still needed the one extra year of development to work on playability. Because the game looks, looks okay, but the playability didn't satisfy us. And uh, the Epic told us, oh, guys, we need to release because the market is dying, uh, now or never. Uh, so let's release it, and then maybe we will make a... A bug fix or an or an update, <laughs> but actually we never did it. There was always that kind of idea with Amiga that uh, you know Amiga couldn't do 3D, and that was what a lot of people said. And I think the demo groups actually came around and proved uh, that that was completely wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. The graphic mode of Amiga works in planar mode, and uh, to do 3D stuff, uh, you need to you need you don't need, but it's much better if you work in chunky mode. So the Amiga was lower anyway because you needed to to make a software conversion um, planar to chunky, and also Amiga has the possibility to have um, three kinds of uh, RAM of memory. And the graphic uh, chipset of Amiga only works with the slow, with the cheap RAM, which is low. So mm, these two aspects uh, were always a problem uh, for developers uh, because it, after Doom was released, everybody wanted 3D. I don't know if you remember that moment where yeah. on Amiga we had wonderful two-dimensional platform games or adventure games and nobody was uh, caring about them anymore. Uh, because everybody wanted 3D, but of course, uh, uh, to make a 3D game on a plain Amiga 1200, uh, it was a bit complicated. And then the market, uh, then Commodore failed, and market shrunk. It was like ah, a lot of uh, negative stuff. <laughs> but we wanted to prove. Also, at that time, there were a lot of demos with with very nice 3D engines. So at that time, I felt uh, that there wasn't yet a big gap. Also, with Amiga, I could connect on internet easily. I, I had a Bvision uh, graphic card, and uh, which was super fast. So actually, my friends with PC, they were coming to my home, and they were looking at my Amiga, and they said, like, this is a modern PC. 
I said, no, 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 this mm. is an Amiga. And they were like shocked, like, wow. <laughs> Upgraded heavily. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I mean, by the time we got to 2000, I, mean, I remember, you know, Amiga Format magazine here in the UK and had closed down early 2000. It felt like the Amiga market was really kind of shrinking then because of, you know, the stuff you mentioned before about all these promises that were being made that, you know, the, the parent company Amiga Inc. didn't deliver on. Um, and I know around that time after Tales from Heaven, You've also worked on some uh, unreleased Amiga titles as well. I read that you worked on a game called uh, The Golem and also a shooter game called Alive. So can you tell us a bit about those those games and is, is there much left of them today? Uh, about the Golem, um, I was only working uh, as a programmer for um, another company. It wasn't my project. And right. the company uh, opened, they were renting offices. They were, um, they were quite serious. I mean, they, they looked serious. And I remember that they asked me uh, to work uh, as a programmer and Aud Vanitorelli, which, um, which was Aud Dark Age, was also a demo senior, to, be the, um, to, to make the music for that game. And we started to work on it but then the contract uh, uh, they made wasn't the best so we asked for a better contract and um, and we left the company <laughs> it was a, a company made by two cousins and uh, one was the graphic artist behind the golem and the other was uh, uh, i think he worked as a policeman or something like that and he was basically sponsoring the company so probably at some point they decided to to cancel the project and close the company before the game was released because also they real, they realized that the amiga market was too small and uh, on pc there were different kind of games so that game couldn't work uh, on, on PC. I, I, I remember there was a bit of hype around it at the time because uh, they'd mm. released like a, a little FMV or like a little, you know, video of it. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, all the magazines were going crazy, I remember. <laughs> yeah, the, and the, the game was made in Amos, by the way, <laughs> not, not oh, wow. in Assembler. <laughs> yes. About the arcade software, uh, we were working on a shoot em up uh, called uh, Alive. Uh, which now you could call it a, um, oh, my English pronunciation now is going to be very bad, a rogue, a rogue light. So basically rogue, where yeah, everything yeah. Uh, uh, arrives on the screen and you need to shoot. So no scrolling, nothing, just bam, 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 bam. <laughs> we found a way to, to show something like 60 uh, sprites at the same time at 50 frames per second. And I'm very sorry that that, that game uh, wasn't released because ah, it was looking very nice. And the programmer of that, I, I was uh, directing that project. I wasn't programming it uh, personally. And the programmer of that game now uh, is the one of the lead programmers of uh, TripAdvisor. He lives in the UK and we still have contact. Uh, he's a very, very talented uh, programmer. And I asked him, uh, ah, maybe you, do you have still the, the sources of that game? Because I could uh, complete it. And he told me like, yeah, but they are in Rome on my Amiga 4000. And I don't know when I will come back to Rome to Italy again so <laughs> I'm just waiting <laughs> to see if I that can... needs a, that needs a road trip to recover that then I'd love to play that game <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> because I can tell you the, it's really even now it would be like wow the graphics uh, I have all the graphics all the music I found on my hard disk everything um, I just released recently about Alive if you are curious to see something I released the intro the executable file of the intro and all the graphic assets on our web portal which is called gamesthatweren't.com. So if yeah. you go there and you search alive, you can uh, 
um, uh, watch the intro, all the first part, uh, and, uh, and all the graphics. And I hope that hard disk in your friend's Amiga 4000 still works because it would be uh, would be amazing <laughs> to finally get that game out there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking to make it with the, the Scorpion engine, actually, yeah. eventually. But then time is always so short. So <laughs> this is, yeah, we will see, we will see. <laughs> if alive, the game will be really alive. <laughs> well, I also read that you, uh, you worked briefly with Team 17. I mean, what, what was the story there? Uh, well, uh, no, we had some contacts, but uh, nothing, uh, nothing happened. I was working for Epic Marketing, and um, but now I'm very happy because li- life, uh, life is always bringing a lot of presents, unexpected presents that are so beautiful, and I always, always in my life. Uh, wanted to shake the hand uh, of Alistair Brimble, the music artist of Team 17. And mm. uh, 30 years later, <laughs> he was in my home and uh, uh, we, we had lunch together. We opened bottles of wine together and we are friends. And this is one of the best presents I received in my entire life. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, somehow I'm connected with Team 17. Well, I mean, obviously, we'll talk more about the uh, the amazing event that you do, and also this uh, this new title as well that Alice has done the music for, uh, Mysterious Cassette. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, before we do that, I mean, going back to the kind of stuff that you did in, in the 2000s, you also released a product called Supreme, um, which looked really interesting. This allowed digital video effects on the Amiga. I mean, tell us a bit about this one and why you made that. Okay. Uh, when I was studying at university, I was uh, working on a local TV called Tele Perugia, and they had uh, Amiga, only Amiga uh, there. They had a lot of Amiga 2000 with Genlock and uh, Scala Multimedia, uh, which uh, was a software to create video titling, uh, um, and it was working brilliantly on the Amiga. So I thought, why uh, should I... I was uh, always thinking that uh, the demo effects would, would run great on TV. So I started to... Um, to take some effects that I made and uh, to work on a graphic interface. And um, I released uh, a software called Extreme. I opened my VAT one day before uh, an Amiga event in Italy called Pianeta Amiga. And I remember that in two days, we sold 1,500 copies of uh, Extreme, which gave me all the money then to open a, a proper office to run the arcade software. Um, and immediately I said, okay, my, my interface and my software works nice, but, uh, I want something more and, um, where you can create a, a sort of storyboard. So first this effect, then this graphics, then this other effect, then this tunnel, then this light effect, then this, uh, texture mapping, uh, um, uh, screen and this and that. And Supreme was the uh, upgraded version of Extreme. Uh, it was released in 2001 at the same event, uh, Pianeta Amiga. And uh, three years before, we sold uh, 1,500 copies of, the, of Extreme, the younger brother. And uh, during the, the Pianeta Amiga event, uh, when we released Supreme, we sold something like 20 copies. So, yeah, the Amiga market was <laughs> really uh, <laughs> dying, at least in Italy. 
And I'm very sorry because that software is totally unknown to most of the people, but it has a lot of features. Also, you can uh, program scripts in Arex. Uh, uh, you, you can add a lot of stuff. It's um, compatible with the graphic cards, so you can really uh, work in true color with the super high resolutions. It has a lot of features that Extreme didn't have. And I'm very happy that you mentioned that software because maybe now every somebody will be curious about it. Yeah, because I mean, you gave me a copy of it on, on CD and I've been playing around with it and it does look really impressive. And I think if that had come out a few years earlier, it would have been very well known. It yeah. was just bad timing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I was very happy because uh, since I was a child, I um, I bought uh, British magazines like CU Amiga, The One, Amiga Power and Amiga Format. And then I saw, as you say, that the Amiga magazines were dying and Amiga Format was the last one to, to close. And, uh, and uh, in the last issue of uh, Amiga Format, they reviewed Extreme. And I was so happy, like, okay, a dream coming true. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Well, you um, started putting on your own demo parties in Spoleto as well. Uh, what what are your kind of memories and uh, highlights of those days? Oh, wow. The, those were the times, really. We um, we decided to organize a demo party uh, with, uh, with my friends. And I went to the city council and they had no idea what a computer was and uh, especially what a, the demo scene was. And I started to, to, to explain what it was like, okay, we want to make a competition and people from all Europe will come and uh, it's about creating art on computers, something like Andy Warhol. And those were the magic wars. And I remember that they gave us uh, the volleyball stadium for free to organize the party there. And uh, at that time we had um, a team in first league of volleyball. So <laughs> the volleyball stadium was like, wow, a jewel, an amazing place. And they gave us 5 millions of lire. The, at that time, it was really a lot of money. And um, the event, the first year was very, very successful. And we had all the eyes of the local community because, oh, wow, what are those guys doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> it was a sort of rave party for uh, people that normally uh, produce olive oil or wine. So they are so far away from the computers. <laughs> <laughs> and then we made the other three editions, and uh, which were, they went well. And uh, actually, it was very, very nice to organize stuff. That's why 20 years later, I decided to organize uh, some other Amiga events. <laughs> well, let's talk about that kind of, because you left the Amiga scene, you said. So, so when did you leave the Amiga scene and how did you rediscover it? What kind of happened there? Uh, I was so tired of um, Amiga, um, Amiga Inc., uh, and when they, they, their plan was to release the Amiga Anywhere platform and Amiga DA, which was a sort of, yes, of Java virtual machine, then I was so angry and I said, and demotivated as well, because the sales of our software were so low. So I was like, okay, I, I, cl I will close this door. It, it has been a fantastic time, but it's time to move on. So I, I, I stopped using my Amiga. I didn't sell it, thanks God. And um, and I started to work on music. And uh, I became a professional musician. Then, and I didn't touch an Amiga for 20 years. <laughs> it was a tough time because uh, there were lots of promises about stuff coming out and, uh, you know, uh, lots of hope. And it just kept not happening, not happening. Like compared to today, uh, the Amiga scene is uh, absolutely thriving now and there's lots of hardware and software. But back then it was uh, very desolate, which is uh, maybe hard for people to understand nowadays. 
Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I am I have to say that the um, the Amiga scene now, not only the demo scene, the Amiga community uh, is very alive. And thanks God, uh, we are no more competing with PC. Now it's called the retro computing. So take the Amiga as it is, with planar mode, with the color limitation, with the only four channels audio. And guess what? It's a beautiful computer. Even now in 2023, it's a fantastic computer to program something or even to play games. It's wow, or to watch demos. <laughs> it's such a well, wonderful you know- machine. What made you turn your Amiga back on? And uh, w- were you surprised when you got back into the Amiga and suddenly the scene was quite getting big again? I was so surprised because I was in Poland during COVID, during the lockdown, and it was snowing like crazy. It was cold. We had to stay at home. Uh, so my music career was falling down <laughs> vertically. Uh, all the booking agencies I had, they closed or they closed the contract with me. So I was like, okay, mm. By curiosity, I called a friend of mine and how are you? And um, do you still have an Amiga? And he told me like, I have Amiga forever. And I was like, what's that? Oh, that's a package uh, where you can on PC very easily use an emulator and have uh, the feeling of a real Amiga. And I was like, wow, nice. So I I bought it. And uh, yeah, somehow the feeling of Amiga, uh, the flame <laughs> switch on again. And I was like, okay, but do you have some new games? And then he told me like, oh, you won't believe it. There are new games every month and uh, the operating system is being updated and there are new um, uh, accelerator uh, bars and uh, a lot of magazines. And uh, there is a new magazine in England called Amiga Dict. Look, wow, it looks fantastic. The, The first issue was just released and I bought it and it arrived very quickly to Poland and I was like, wow, And then I noticed in Italy, we always had uh, a lot of uh, paper magazines. Until 2010, we still had had some uh, uh, magazines. One was called The Beat Plane. Then there was another one, uh, Enigma Amiga Life, Enigma Amiga Run. Uh, What else we had? We had a lot of uh, magazines. So I asked my account, which is the process to open uh, a legal magazine. And he told me, like, oh, you, you need to have a company. And I said, I have. You need to have a journalist, uh, official journalist, uh, that uh, will be the responsible for the magazine. I said, I have. So he will put the signature on, uh, on, on the quality of the magazine. You need to register on the, in the, at the tribunal the magazine. And I said, how much it costs? And he told me the price. It was absolutely affordable. And you need to be registered in another list, blah, blah, blah. So... Uh, I said, okay, I will make a magazine in Italian language because <laughs> we, we always had one magazine in, in our language. We need, we need to have one uh, now that everything is happening again. That's why mm. Passione Amiga magazine was born. <laughs> Which continues to this day. And uh, obviously the, the events that you put on as well, the, the awesome Passione Amiga Day, um, which I know is it two of those you've done now, is that right? And there's, there's more planned for next year? Yeah, we when the lockdown was over, I came back to Italy and with uh, some other friends uh, we de- oh, that uh, write in the magazine, we decided to create an event like this uh, Pianeta Amiga event that I mentioned before that was every year in September. And so we, or- we organized the, this event and um, I know how to, uh, to have a, a place for free in my hometown in Spoleto. So we basically covered all the costs and uh, some friends of mine found some sponsors. So 
<laughs> so we had everything, all the ingredients to make an, an Amiga event. We ran uh, in September the, this year the third edition. We had the luck to have uh, you as a, one of our uh, guests uh, and also um, David Pleasance from Commodore, Alistair Brimble from Team17 uh, and Mevlo Dink from Vivid Image Design. Wow, it was uh, <laughs> very nice. And um, personally, uh, this was my last uh, edition of uh, Passion Amiga. But the other mm. uh, people in the magazine, they are um, already organizing uh, the next uh, edition. Uh, probably next year it will be in Rome. So even more yeah. easy to, to arrive uh, if somebody from UK is curious, for example, to spend a weekend or, or even more to central Italy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I've spoken about it on the podcast. What an incredible event it was, and just you know, lovely people there as well, and really passionate Amiga fans. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be there next year, one hundred percent. And obviously, as we'll find out more details, I'm, I'm sure you'll keep us posted. We mention it on the show. And uh, just quickly, I mean, because before we kind of wrap things up, Dark Edge is back, isn't it? Because I know you've got a new website set up, and also I did see that you know you're working with Alistair Brimble amongst other people on a new Amiga adventure game, which is called mysterious cassette so tell us about this <laughs> yes uh, the real engine behind this project uh, is carlo pastore which is a huge amiga passionate he writes also on the magazine on passion amiga magazine uh, he co-organized the passion amiga day and next year he will be the main organizer of the event and he sponsored, basically, the development of the game. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Commodore 64, The Mysterious Cassette, which is available on Amazon in uh, English and in Italian languages. And um, then he asked me, Paolo, I would like to that Dark Age software exist again. And I never closed the VAT of um, Dark Age software. It was uh, somehow sleeping VAT, so I, re I reactivated it and um, I found a team. So uh, Colin Vella, which is um, uh, an amazing uh, Maltese uh, programmer. And uh, then I asked Alistair Brimble uh, to create the music. So yes, Alistair is back on the Amiga after <laughs> 20 <Wow>. years. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the game, the plot of the game is based on uh, this book. So, <laughs> and um, the game is almost ready. It will be released before Christmas uh, in a digital format, but also in the physical version. So um, it will be an, uh, on, uh, on classic uh, Amiga box. <laughs> and inside, we decided to don't put any floppy disks. There will be the label, so if, if somebody wants to copy the game on a floppy disk, then uh, they can just apply the label uh, on it. But we will provide a USB stick, so there will be the ADF uh, file, so if anybody uses an Amiga emulator can can, can use it, or uh, if they use a, the Amiga 500 Mini as well. And inside there will be also the, the books in English and Italian format. So we, we put a, a lot more of more content than if we just release it on floppy disk. Uh, so, well, that's the thing. There's just so many ways that you can play Amiga games <laughs> these days. So that makes, I mean, for you as well, personally, you know, doing a game with Alistair Brimble, that must be like a childhood dream come true. Oh, it's incredible. It's, really, life is is so full of, of presents. Also, I have to say that I have so uh, personal childhood memories of me playing with my dad uh, on uh, the game Second Samurai. And also mm. I had the luck to meet in person uh, Mevlut Dink, which is also an amazing person. So it was like, wow! 
Yeah. <laughs> now you're hanging out with your childhood heroes. That's awesome. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> Well, Paolo, uh, you know, I, I love your passion for the Amiga and I, I love the fact that, you know, it, it burns really strong again these days and you, you're back to making software on the Amiga and, uh, you know, with the events and the magazine as well. So long may it continue, Paolo, and um, obviously we'll, we'll catch up again at the, the event next year. But thank you so much for coming on and doing some reminiscing with us. Oh, thank you very, very much. For me, uh, talking about Amiga now is such a joy. And I realised that the demo scene, uh, can survive without modem, but modem cannot survive without the demo scenes. <laughs> yeah, you need it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, Paolo. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. And uh, I invite everyone uh, to visit Umbria, central Italy. We don't have the sea, uh, but we have a lot of uh, Amiga still now, <laughs> and we are very friendly people. 